say, for example, uh, Ames, Iowa, there, there'd be no place for you to play. You'd, you, you'd, you'd play intramural stuff, you know, like the uh, skinny guys versus the fat guys in, uh, you know, the gym. But when the, the big game of the week would come, like, say, you went to Pitcairn High School, the big game would be the girls, and they draw five, 6,000 people, you know? Oh, man, I'll tell you. Oh, before we, you know, it's, it's a great change. <laughs> I'll tell you, baseball could be very decorative, I mean, with the right people out there playing it. la da Really? I, I, one time, I have to concede that I have a, uh, I have a, you know, I, I have a personal angst to grind. We all do, you know, in life. But can't get around it. We all have personal little things. But there was a time, Jerry, and I have never told you this. I haven't told you this. I just, there was a time. Well, all right, I might as well admit it. When I was fantastically in love with a center, and they were really, you know, they were really top flight. They were playing big time uh, girls softball teams. Would come from all over the country and play there, and they played night games. My old man loved to go to these things. He really, he really loved to go to, to, to night softball games. Now they played fast pitch. Now I might explain to you. It wasn't this big sixteen inch pillow that they throw around here at the east, the Faith East. Now they they. It was a fast pitch, you know, the big windmill wind up and pow, you know, they'd lay that ball and 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 the team, our team was was a pretty good team. I mean, they were, you know, they were they were they played five hundred, maybe six hundred ball and against these top flight teams. Well, there was a rookie joined the team. I remember I'm sitting in the stands. I'm about eight or nine. See, there's a rookie joined the team, and uh, there was a lot of stuff in the sport pages in town. You know, it shows a. Uh, Rookie joins team, you know, bought from Almeida, California, something like that. And here's this chick, and she was blonde and beautiful. I mean, a little, you know, the kind, you know, just, you know, just, you know what I mean? She, she, the kind, you know, that if you had to feel if you squeezed her, she'd go eek. You know, she just really, you know. Well, anyway, I see this picture. See, and I was at that time. I was, I was, you know, going to movies all the time on Saturday afternoons with Schwartz and Flick. And I had a lot of secret loves. Everybody does. You know, you never mentioned the Schwartz or Flick. How, for example, could I tell them that I was deeply in love with Ann Rutherford? Did you ever hear of Ann Rutherford? Nobody else has. And that's the trouble. See, if you're in love with somebody really big, everybody sort of agrees with you, you know? Like today, if you were in love with, uh, say, from afar, with uh, Sophia Loren, everybody would say, well, well, I understand that, you know? They'd laugh, maybe. But they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I understand it. When you say you're in love with Ann Rutherford, that's, yeah, that takes explanation. So, uh, you know, and, and also takes, in many cases, apologizing, too. So, <laughs> you know, for, you know, having a bad head. But uh, nevertheless, I fell in love with this Ann Rutherford. Have any of you ever heard of Ann Rutherford? You did. Where, where, who? No, it's not the chick that works down in the county, Jerry. Come on, that's a different Ann Rutherford. Are you sure you, you know who I'm talking about? That's right. You're a movie cuckoo, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. You would know about Ann Rutherford. She pops up in trivia exams occasionally. Well, Ann Rutherford, in case you're interested, was the uh, second girlfriend of Andy Hardy, uh, uh, which would meant Mickey Rooney, in the Andy Hardy movies. Now, the first girlfriend was Judy Garland. The second girlfriend was Ann Rutherford. Well, you know, I, I'm about nine, see, I'm a kid, see, and, I, and I'd go to see these movies. They were always playing Saturday afternoon. They'd, they'd throw an Andy Hardy. There was an idea around that kids liked Andy Hardy movies. They're terrible. That we didn't like Andy Hardy movies. <laughs> My mother liked Andy Hardy movies. <laughs> but what, what we wanted to see, you know, was a lot of shooting, guys riding around on horses, you know, and all that jazz. And uh, we would go Saturday afternoon, and, and they'd have two giant features. 
that, that involved guys riding around on horses and shooting. And the third feature they would throw in, I guess for the more effete kids, would be something like uh, Andy Hardy puts on a show in some great movie like that. Of course, we'd leave usually about halfway through that one. Either that or we would start throwing popcorn around and yelling and hollering. Then when it was over, then we'd go back to serious watching. See, the thing about watching a triple feature was that you never left the theater. You watched all. You watched the triple feature maybe for three showings, which would mean that you would see nine movies. You know, it's a long one. Have you wondered why I'm permanently L-shaped? You know, you get this L-shaped triple feature paralysis, which hits you right down here back of the knees if you sit through too many of those. See, and I've got it. You know, great muscles in the back there from sitting in an L-shaped form. And... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible disease. It has afflicted many people. And so I, I've overcome it, though. See, I have special corrective shoes and I have the, you know, the whole thing. But it's, a, it's called triple feature, triple feature syndrome. Excuse me, madam. You're standing too close. Get off the microphone card, will you? But uh, nevertheless, uh, when you're, <laughs> when you're, uh, when you're, you know, you're in a very impressionable age. And so one day we were seeing these great movies, Roy Rogers and, you know, what was his name, though? Maybe it was Horace, you know, Trigger, you know. And we, we're seeing Dale walking around there, and everybody's cheering. And, and uh, on comes another great giant feature we saw. I think it was something like uh, a Gene Autry. He's walking around with his horse, and he wears this fancy suit, and he sings a guitar. You know what? That, that never went over with the kids. I might as well warn you there. Uh, no, Don't think that the kids, uh, Gene Autry's playing his guitar and riding that horse around. No way. The minute he would whip out the guitar, you'd hear, Boo! He's not the singer, hey, boo! And, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, was not what we went for. It was in the last, or maybe the second to the last reel, when the stagecoach would approach. All that shooting and yelling. and There's always a guy that jumps down, and he's hanging on to that, 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 that thing between the horses. You know, you know that big scene? They always do that. Well, I, that was what we went for, see. Of course, we didn't realize at the time that they used the same scene in all the movies. They just clipped it out and pasted it in the next movie. It's the same thing, you know. One guy shot that once. It's still being used on television. You know, that pops up on Bonanza every couple of weeks. So, nevertheless, uh, I was uh, at an impressionable age, like I say. And, and there was one afternoon when I had had, unfortunately, I'd had, um, well, I'd had too many Milky Way bars. You know, kind of feeling a little euphoria there. And uh, on comes the Andy Hardy movie, which usually was the signal to go to the John, to walk around and go and buy some popcorn and start arguing and hitting guys. We'd sit in the balcony and start throwing stuff down, you know, and all that stuff. We never watched it. Well... Now, out comes this movie, and there was a scene right in the beginning where you saw this this chick, this fantastic chick. Now, at that point, I was not really interested in girls. You know, that's what bothered me. See, I thought it was kind of sick because I, you know, I, I had never reported in at home that girls had, that had much interest to me at that time. I was about nine, see. You're interested in other things at that point. You agree with that, don't you, in general? And so, uh, well, there's a certain uh, intellectual curiosity, of course, that usually involves biological things, but... Uh, as, as far as a, a deep interest and total involvement and complete concern, which, by the way, reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. Uh, <laughs> I just sort of fit that all. <laughs> I'm sorry, friends. But, the, I mean, chauvinism pops its ugly head everywhere. Do you have, uh, speaking of chauvinism, the minute I mention the name of this radio station, immediately, what, what's the first thing I think of? What's the first thing you think of, huh? John Gambling? No. Commercials. Hit it. <laughs> This is Tex Ritter for the New York, New Jersey American Motors dealers. And they're coming on strong. Coming on strong. Coming on strong. 
Cause we've got the quality in the cars you want to buy. The protection of AMC at a price you're glad to pay. Drive the number one value in a carefree way. What America wants, America gets from American Motors. Finer cars and the best fire protection plan going. See the cars that are headed for a second straight record-breaking year. See your New York, New Jersey, American Motors dealers soon. And tell them Tex sent you. Okay, Tex, okay, man. You get off my foot and I'll go on doing my business. Okay, Tex? Take that damn horse out of here, too. Uh, say, friends, you need tires. <clears throat> Excuse me, I slipped right into that, you know. Yeah, you're listening to Cousin Gene here, and I'd like to talk to you just like the way we talked back in the days when I was working a thing called the Ohio River Jamboree. You folks out there need tires? Well, you see the tire pro at your local General Tire headquarters for all your tire needs. From sports cars to sedans, compacts to king-size cars, General Tire makes the tires you need. They're wonderful tires, and at prices are easy to afford. Choose from rayon cord tires, nylon cord tires, puncture sealant tires, steel belted radial tires, and money, many, many more. It's not your General Tire with a big red G. And uh, by the way, all you buckaroos out there in Plainfield, you visit the new store at 815 West Front Street at Grant Avenue. And you ask for Joe Vasta, Joseph Vasta. Also, you visit uh, Harvey Kushner at Howard Square Stores, 2886 Atlanta Avenue in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's terrible, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> what I have done in the past. I would say, uh, folks, if you'd like, if you like to eat, you'll love New York Magazine this week. You certainly will, because in it you read uh, how author Mimi Sheraton ate her way through Bloomingdale's food shop. Every single item, all 1,961 of them, she's just an absolute pig. It took her 11 months to taste all them items, all $2,322.18 worth. So it don't cost you that. Uh, Ms. Sheridan, that's M.S., provides New York Magazine with a guide to her trip to Bloomingdale's Garden of Exotic Tastes, the delightful and the horrible, too. And she rates everything for you, you know, she's not... Uh, so, uh, read, quote, how I ate everything in Bloomingdale's food shop in this week's New York Magazine, and use it as your guide to any one of the city's gourmet shops. Yes, sir, this old friend, this is your cousin Gene here. And, uh, we're just kicking it around. We're sent to you every week at this same time by Purina Chick Chow. In the checkered bag, and uh, I'd like to say this: if you got a show, if you got slow laying chickens out there, you ask for a puree and a chick chow special laying mash. You'll find it at your favorite feed store. Tell them cousin Gene sent you. Now I'd like to repeat again: that's chick chow special laying mash. It's for slow laying chicks. You'll find it in that big checkerboard bag. And now let's get on with all them songs and all them things that you've been writing in and asking for. Let's go. One, two, three, four. Come on, let's sing it out, King. All together now. This goes to Mrs. L.W. McBullen, who writes from Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. She says, would you please play that funny loud noise record that you got down there at those radio station years? So we'd be glad to send it out there. In just a moment, we'll have prayer time. I want all of you to sit around and listen to that. And, of course, then we're going to have March around breakfast time. And uh, don't forget now, we're sent to you by Purina Chick Chow and Purina Chick Chow Special Lay and Man. Yeah. 
It's a serious program. We can't mess around like that. Do you see how I get carried away? Just terrible. Get carried away like that. <laughs> hey, listen, I I, uh, I have to, on the air here, i got to answer a couple of on-the-air letters because we can't answer mail. No way. And this guy writes and says, uh, Shepard, he says, uh, wait a minute here. Yeah, he says, Shepard, he says, uh, you please send the picture. He says, I want to know how you are. I'll tell you this. I ain't going to send no picture to him. But I'll tell you this. If you want to see a picture, I'm scared. And I'll just answer it on the air here. You just walk past Carnegie Hall, you'll see a picture of me. Did you see that, Jerry? Ain't that fantastic? My God almighty. <laughs> I'll tell you. It scares me. But, of course, I'm scared of a lot of things. I'll tell you. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's even worse if you get... You know, if you get scared of your own image. But let me say this. Everywhere you look, you know, you see mystery popping up. I mean, it's just uh, it's just popping up everywhere. I, I uh, Now, for, for no reason at all, I suddenly found myself dropping into Tex Ritter dialect. Did you notice that? Now, what made me do that? What strange forces are at work? I suddenly, I'm suddenly, and, and I imagine a lot of you think I made up Purina Chick Chow Special Chick Land Mash, didn't you? No, no, man. That's that's the real thing. And if you've got a chick that's slow laying out there, you just get some of that stuff. It works. You slip that right in their orange juice. And... Well, that's another thing here. We won't get into that. I mean, you know, it gets kind of complicated life, does. you notice that? Sometimes now you think, you just think. Now, now, for example, in that commercial, they're talking about a king-sized tire, right? Now, the implication is always with us that kings live this fantastic life, right? I mean, every time you hear about that, you know, it's like king-sized cigarettes, you know. King-sized drinks. The king, you, know, you figure the king's really got the world by the you-know-what, you know? I mean, they bring him these big drinks. Yeah, I go to this joint the other night, and they had a little, one of these little table tents, you know, at the table. It says, king-sized martini. It says, try our new king-sized martini. So you just ask for it. So I says, I'll have one of them king-sized martinis. And, and she says, all right, I'll bring one. And uh, she goes away, and she comes back with this little plastic tray, you know. And on the plastic tray, she's got one of the glasses. It looks like a, you know, it's like a little spittoon on a, on a, on a kind of a platform, you know. It's sticking up there, one of them round ones. And uh, she says, "Here's your king size martini, sir." And she lays it down in front of me. Well, I, I realize that the king size martini ain't what it seems to be. What it is is a king size gobboon full of ice. That's really what it is, you know. You don't drink much ice. Me, I, I, I've never been so much for eating ice, but I do like. Uh, you know, occasional martini in between it. And so I'm sipping way there, and it's all gone. Next thing I know, I'm sipping ice water. And I says, well, what's this king-size martini? She said, well, that's the way kings like it. I said, oh, I see. Well, uh, of course, you can't argue with truth. And uh, <laughs> you really can't. See, it's always implied that kings have everything big, you know, everything big and good, right? Well, I don't want to, seriously, I don't want to disillusion you tonight, but, but I'm just going to have to lay something on you you may not like. Now, not many of you, of course, get a chance to read English newspapers regularly, do you? Well, I do. And I want to tell you, if you think Nixon is getting his lumps from all kinds of people yelling and hollering at any president that's in, whoever he might be, you ought to hear what happens to kings and queens and, and princesses. I mean, hardly a day goes by, but what some paper isn't just taking off on Prince Philip. I mean, because, you know, the kind of suit he's wearing or, or he's setting a bad example because he didn't have a hat on last week and the hat makers are yelling, you know. And uh, he went out the other day without his rubbers out in the rain. And what's this going to do to the international galoshes makers and all that stuff, you know? 
And so they just take their lumps. And the other day I'm reading the Daily Express. You see, I, 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 what I do, you see, I, I'll be honest with you, that uh, I keep these English papers under the desk I got there. I got this knee-hole desk, you know, and uh, I, I sit there and I stick my knees under it, you know, and I look around and real official-like. And I have, a, I have a paper clip thing on there, you know, make staples on it. Once in a while, I take a couple of pieces of paper and I staple them together. Now, I don't have no use to do that, but it looks like I'm really doing something. See, so I staple these papers. I boom like that. I hit it like that. And the stapler comes out. I'll never forget the time I had this friend named Jack Pyle. He was showing me how a stapler worked. He got a new stapler, you know, those little hand staples. He said, you look at this little thing. It's fantastic. And he stapled his little finger and his middle finger together it, by mistake. Have you ever done that? <laughs> you think you can. He just said, well, open it. They say, oh, my God, look at my fingers. And he stapled his two fingers together, you know. It's just like he's a frog. You know, just, you know, how frogs have, have webbed feet. He had a webbed hand there, you know. Fingers all stapled. That'd be pretty good for some shortstops, I know. You know, let a lot of stuff go through lately. But that's another thing. I don't want to get into that. You know, athletics bore so many people, which is kind of sad. I mean, I hate to see that, really. That just shows you ain't got no interest in defeat and all the thrill and ecstasy of victory and all that, you know, and that's just too bad. Do you agree with that? But do you now? I want a, I want a definite answer here. I don't want to just keep going. Do you? My God, I can get no reaction at all. I'll tell you, it must be this microphone that's not hooked up. They ain't hearing me in there, that's all. <laughs> oh, well, nevertheless, though, you want to hear about the king. Now, you think that... Now, now the reason I keep these English newspapers, you know, around... Is because once in a while, you know, somebody will come in, somebody who's real uppity, like one of them salesmen comes down from the 23rd floor or something, see. So I, as soon as I hear he's coming, I hear them footsteps coming. They walk with a real heavy tread, you know, these salesmen. They got these expensive shoes, you know. They pay, eight, oh, maybe eight, ten, fifteen dollars for a pair, you know. And they come clumping down there. I know one of them salesmen is coming, wearing them, you know, them nine dollar shoes, you know, with the zippers up the side, the chains hanging down the back, you know, and the big high heels. And he comes clumping down. And so I reach under my desk in the knee hole, and I whip out my English newspaper. No, that gets them every time. I'm sitting there reading an English newspaper. Something about anything English that, uh, you know, really sets you apart. Sets you apart. I, I, I have a friend, for example, who has, who's got a hang-up, say, for example, on... on uh, he does, you know. He's one of these guys. He comes from a place called Raintree, Georgia. You ever heard of Raintree, Georgia? Well, I have, and uh, you're hearing about it now. And uh, he come up from Raintree... And uh, he brought up with him all of his bad habits that he had from down in Rain Tree. For example, he loves to chew tobacco. Now, chewing tobacco is not a thing they do often in the agencies around New York. You know that. I mean, it's just simply not done. He also likes to snuff a little snuff once. Well, he likes a pinch now and then, you know. And he grew up with that. His, his old grandma and his, his, uh, his old mammy and his, his daddy, they all, they, all, they all pinched snuff and they chewed tobacco. And it ain't easy to break your habits. And he likes it. Well, he comes up there here, and, you know, he, his particular favorite uh, is, is beech nut. He likes beech nut chewing tobacco. He takes it in the big wad, you know, and wads it up. You ever done that, Art? You ever chewed tobacco? You, you ain't no real ball player, then. I mean, the real ones, they do it. So, so uh, well, let's put it this way. The big ones do it. So, nevertheless, he, he uh, you know, he, a couple of days he's chewing beech nut, and he realized everybody's laughing. But he discovered something. He goes to one of these fancy tobacco shops here in town, and he found out they sold English chewing tobacco there. And it comes with these old English letters all over the front. And so he began chewing English chewing tobacco in the agency. And now it's a very chic thing to do because it's English. He also uses English and French snuff now. He don't use that stuff, you know, that comes out of the machines down there at the pool room. And, uh, oh, no. So if you do anything English, you're okay. 
whatever it is. You buy an English bullwhip, you're not a sadist. You're just a, an anglophile. Uh, but you buy a bullwhip down on 14th Street, and you're just one of them bad people. But uh, so, you know, it's a <laughs> six of one, half dozen other. So I don't know how I got out of the subject tonight, but it's important to point out that, uh, that the English have a certain mystique with the average person, a certain panache. <laughs> when I use a French word, it's panache, which is a kind of a candy they make with uh, little pieces of almond in it. You've probably had them little uh, almond panaches, haven't you? But nevertheless, he, uh, he uh, you know, he, he discovered English works. So I have discovered the same thing. When anybody comes in, like Mr. Brown walks in, you know, he's going to lay some bad goodies on me, you know. He's going to lay a couple of bad memos. Well, I just whip out my English paper. Well, of course, he walk, turns and walks right out. And uh, that ha- either that or they get kind of kind of scared and nervous and ask if they can talk to me. You know, if, if, uh, so I'm sitting there reading my English paper the other day while this salesman's trying to bust through. And uh, it's the Daily Express. And I'm going to read something to you that may shock you if you believe in kings. I mean, most Americans believe in kings more than Englishmen do. You know that. All royalty just makes it big in this country. And over in uh, England, they just keep dunning them and telling them that their credit cards run out. And that's about it, you know. But uh, here is on the front page of the Daily Express a story that may just give you a little view of uh, English royalty that you did not have. And I quote, it's written by a man named Colin Pratt. It's kind of a good English name, and I'm going to read it to you. A veritable Niagara of noise. That is what they are calling the Royal Flush at Windsor. Now, Windsor is the castle, you know. That's Windsor Castle. You know where that is. where the kings hang around and... Queen Elizabeth II and all those big people, they sit around there and live there, see? A veritable Niagara of noise. Astonished sanitary official Mr. Ernest Batchelor says, the castle loos. Now, maybe you don't know what a loo is, but a loo is just a john. That's what it is. They call it an English phrase. L-O-O is the loo. The English, the, the, the castle loos drown out even the roar of jumbo jets passing overhead. He claims the noise of the johns he beats the jumbo by two or three decibels, and they've taken it with a meter from a hundred yards away. I mean, they got Johns that just let out a terrible roar. You've, you've probably been in places where it's a little embarrassing. And he's got it on tape to prove it. Wouldn't it be kind of nice to buy a couple of tapes of famous Johns around the world? This is Mr. Batchelor. He's director of the Council of British Ceramic Sanitary Manufacturers. And I quote, here's what he says. I've never heard a toilet with such a prodigiously high noise level. Now, he was an angry Scotsman, and uh, they are most of the ceramic engineers in England. Did you think I did that pretty good there, all right, huh? Uh, I'll do it again for you. I've never heard a torrentously high noise of a really noisy lose. After running a test on a lavatory outside the state apartments, he added yesterday, and we quote, I- I'm not surprised Prince Philip complained about a lose. He certainly did. Well, here's the story. <laughs> Last year... <laughs> when he visited the potteries, you know, when you're a prince, you got to go visit all this stuff, you know, where they make the pots and pans and make a, you know, ceremonial state visit. Last year, when he visited the potteries, Prince Philip asked if it wasn't possible to develop a silent loo. He told the potters' union officials, and we quote here, this is the prince speaking, the ones that we have at Windsor are terrible. They keep me awake at night. Well, you know, you can't think of a king there or a prince lying there, and he's being kept awake by the johns roaring when they flush him. But that's what happens. Mr. Batchelor's check on the Windsor Lewis was part of a survey his council ordered on four major tourist centers. The others are at Stratford-on-Avon. Of course, this is a, you know, this is where Shakespeare hung around. York and Canterbury, of all places. Mr. Batchelor examined seven public Lewis 
you know, the, the, the Johns in Windsor, two of them in the castle. He added, well, I discover that there were none inside the state apartment or the public go, but this is understandable. If they are so noisy as the gents outside, no one in the adjoining throne room could ever be able to hear themselves speak. These are the loudest news I've ever heard. He says that would be hardly desirable if the queen was in residence here and them lose all the time. Lauren. Well, that's true, I suppose. And then I have to quote the Mr. Bachelor again, who is, as you can tell, an angry, very concerned Scotsman. He said, There can hardly be a place in the castle where this loot cannot be heard. You hear everywhere in the castle. I should think that they welcome the jets that take their minds off the noise of the loose flushing. Hmm. You know, the jet uh, is a kind of a nice footnote. Uh, Buckingham Palace said yesterday, uh, uh, and, the, you know, there's a whole establishment there. He, uh, they absolutely refute the prince. Now, you'd, you'd think that the prince would have a little weight around there, you know, that his word would be law if he's being kept awake by the Johns flushing, and he said it right there, that they would believe him. You agree? Well, Buckingham Palace officially stated, we are not aware that Prince Philip's sleep has been disturbed. End of statement. So, you know, he's been sat on by the establishment. I mean, you know, the prince. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, now you just never see that that side of life. Uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that real life side of life when you when you visit places like Buckingham Palace. Now, I was in Buckingham Palace once. I went there. I took the tour, as everybody does, goes over in England. And uh, I'll concede that uh, at the time I was there, there were maybe five or 600 people on the long line walking through this big hall. See, that's just all I saw of it, really. And at no point did I hear the Johns flushing uh, in the throne room, especially, which would have been somewhat symbolic, and then probably, possibly even the... Even the even fitting, <laughs> however, <laughs> you know I told you I told you much of life is in bad taste. I, I've warned you about this before. There's no way to argue about it. And now here on the old show here with the time just moving along, that old clock on the wall is saying it's time once again for us to uh, to uh, to dip into our vast file of, of requests. And here's a lady writes to me here from uh, just outside Louisville. She says, "Would you please play a nice tune for my for my." My husband, Elmer. Elmer's been asleep since 1934, and we just kind of think it'd be kind of nice to play a tune for him. And so we're playing this tune for Elmer out there. Lives in town just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. I can't make out her writing here. It's kind of smeared here on the letter, and I see this little bit drops of... Uh, it looks like grape jelly on the bottom of the envelope here, but I'd just like to salute Elmer out there. He's been asleep since 1934. Of course, Elmer ain't along, and you know he ain't along in that thing by himself. I, I just tell you this: I, I'm sorry to say that many people I know been been asleep longer than that. I know some people ain't been awake ever in their life. Have you noticed that? All right. You, you, I ain't gonna put you down. Now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I prefer all right. Because it seems to me anybody who throws a ball like you is better. Better. By the way, can you get a baseball cap on over your hair? I just questioned that. Did you? <laughs> Come on, let's bring it up there big there. I want that guy to hear that too. I'm sorry, man. Oh, that's very good. Very good. That's nice. That's nice. You know, I'll never forget the time, though, a friend of mine. I'll tell you, you know, that, that, that brings up a very, you know, kind of a kind of a interesting point. Have you ever heard of a request show on the radio? Now, you know, what, you know what a request show is, where people write in, they ask for tunes, 
and uh, you know they wanted to be dedicated to all the gang out at the, you know, at East Hampton having a having a uh, pajama party and all that jazz. See, well, one night this friend of mine, whom I knew very well, see, he he uh, he did this request and he hated it. Oh God, did he hate it? Because if you ever open the floodgates to the public, the public will inevitably pick the worst possible stuff. In fact, uh, to quote George Ade, it is impossible. This is a great quote, friends. <laughs> I quote George Ade. It is impossible to underestimate the intelligence of the average walking around citizen. And so if you come to him and you say, what do you want? He's, gonna say, he's always, always going to ask for the worst possible stuff, you see. So my friend is working on this request show, and he is really getting up, to, you know, he's getting up tight because he is playing all this bad music. And they keep requesting the same thing. That's another thing. The public has a, has a nutty single-mindedness. He wants to hear the same thing over and over again. And so my buddy, who's on the, you know, he's on the other end. He's handing it out. He got so sick and tired of this that one night, in the middle of his big Saturday night request shows, you know, these teenagers, Leslie, millions of them, and uh, he's dedicating tunes to the gang out at the Route 3 driving, you know, until it's coming out of his ears, see, and he hates it. So one night, you know, he, he just, he had, had, a, had, a, they had a policy, see, anything you request, you play, see. So here he is, he's sitting there reading these requests off, the usual jazz, and all of a sudden, about two-thirds of the way into the show, he says, now, here's a request from, let's see, it's from Pam, Pat, Charlie, Bill, Max, and uh, little Chucky, who write to me out here from, uh, let's see, it's uh, from Ballakinwood, out, just outside of Pennsylvania. And they've requested Mahler's Second Symphony, played by the London Philharmonic. And they'd like to hear the entire symphony. And okay, kids, all of you out there listening tonight in Ballakinwood, here it is, Mahler's Second Symphony, played by the London Symphony under Sir Thomas Beecham. And boom, 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 boom. On comes the Second Symphony. Well, if you know anything about Mahler's Second Symphony, now he presented it just like any other record. See, well, this Second Symphony goes on for roughly one hour and 17 minutes. <laughs> it goes on for one hour and 17 minutes, this, sec- this symphony, and it comes in like three LPs in an alligator case. And, and he just played it all the way. And, of course, the phones are ringing. People are yelling and screaming, you know, that what's going on here? You know, how come you play this? What's this junk you're playing here? When we could all be out here listening to the Stones, what's this junk? And now Mahler's Second Symphony is roaring out. And, uh, of course, uh, my friend just kept saying, well, you know, I'm playing it for Pam and Chucky and Charlie and, and little Fred out there in Balakin with their request. They got just as much right to their request as yours. And nobody could argue that. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, and I and I and I thought, what a, you know, what a, what a what a what a ploy this was. See, because if you ever did do a real request show, that's the way it would be. And you know, the only place I've ever heard a genuine request show, really, where they really did play anything you requested, was in Australia. There was an Australia radio station that I heard one time, and I, I think it was in, uh, gee, was it in Melbourne? It was not in Sydney. It was in the town outside. I think it was Melbourne. Anyway, they had a request show on there, see, and, I, and of course, you know, the Australians, they sound a little bit like uh, Cockneys. They don't sound quite English, and they don't sound quite American, and they don't really sound quite Cockney. There's a, a kind of an in-between. You've heard it, uh, Australians, you know, they, they're Australians. And uh, he's on there, see, and he says, oh, it's all request time now, and uh, he, he's laying it out. See, they come on like that, and I, I figure, well, you know, here's the usual. Just sure enough, they, they lead off with a couple of quick Beatles things, and, you know, and the next thing is, is a couple of stones. And the next thing I hear, I can't believe it, is three Chopin etudes. <laughs> he just, and oh, here we have a request here. And uh, here it comes from Mrs. L.B. in Perth, and she would like to hear 
you would like to hear, uh, let's see, Chopin's uh, Etude Number 422, played by, I believe it's Van Clappen. Well, all right, fine, here it comes right out to you, Mrs. B.D. in Perth. And he says, baby, I said, what the hell? And, and it was a great show because you never know what you were going to hear next. No way. Now, now we're very single-minded. You know, we're in our country, we never mix anything. We, did, we, just, we just don't. That uh, if, if a guy has a request show and everybody's requesting rock, that's all you can get played on that thing, you know? Nobody's going to have a tap dance record. You know, uh, by the way, <laughs> by the way, speaking of tap dance records, <laughs> you ever heard a tap dance record? You think that you, have you ever heard them? Well, you have. Where would you hear a tap dance record? What, who, who was doing the tap dancing on, the, on that record? Or are you just saying that? When did you hear a tap dance record? Well, did you know guys made tap dance records? I never. Mean, they're bad. They're, they're nothing to listen to. I agree. They're just about like on a par with uh, your, your favorite bugle calls. And uh, you have a few of those laid on you. They're kind of fun. But the uh, tap dance record. In fact, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a brass fig leggie with a bronze oak leaf palm. Can you tell me who who had a big hit record? A big hit record. I'm talking a big one of a guy whistling. Whistling. He's a whistler. Famous whistler. Now, how's that for a bit of uh, totally useless trivia? <laughs> it was a hit. I mean, it was like on the charts. Who? I'm not going to tell you. Why should I give you? This is all I've got left to me. I mean, uh, it's my, you know, it's the knowledge that sets us apart, friends. And if I start giving you knowledge, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to walk around big uh, down at the McDonald's, you know, telling people you know everything when you don't. Now, uh, I'm just going to ask you that. Uh, what, what, what famous jazz record, by the way? The very, it's, it's famous in, in jazz. Uh, almost all the jazz dictionaries is a great, curious jazz record that featured a, a whistler. I mean, a big solo on it was a whistler accompanying and accompanied by, they were doing a, a sort of a duet, a bass player. Who was that? And what was it? I'll give you one clue. It was not Slam Stewart. Who was it? How's that for a name? <laughs> Nor was it Stuff Smith. Who was it? I'll give you a clue. It sounded like this. That was the opening opening phrase. That was the next phrase. So you see, it gets sneakier all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> and you see, you 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 can you can just realize you, you know what a complicated world it is. No way for you to argue that it is. What with the Johns and the Windsor Castle roaring out every night like that, Prince is not able to sleep. Shepard tossing and turning. Guys throwing slow balls when they should be throwing fastballs. The fact other guys are falling in love with center fielders and play on a girls' softball team, it's fantastic. Hey, I never did finish that story, did I? Well, we'll save that for later, friends. There's so much for later. Would you please bring it up big there, Al? Big, lay it on me. Hey, that's the worst piece of music, by the way, I've ever heard. That's why I use it. Now don't forget now, friends. Carnegie Hall, Tuesday the 17th. That is an order. Oh, I see. 
course, this is WOR New York, naturally. You stay tuned for Big Lester Smith and the News. President Nixon's top security advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, who was supposed to have flown home from Paris tonight after an unprecedented three days of secret talks with the communist negotiators in Paris, unexpectedly extended his stay for further secret negotiations on peace in Vietnam. WOR's Clifford Evans reports. The White House again says no comment, but the fact is that when Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Tho had met 17 times between 1969 and earlier this year, each time they met for only a matter of hours. Two weeks ago, they met for two days. And now they have agreed to a fourth day of negotiations in Paris. Kissinger and Ladocto do not make small talk. From all indications, they appear to have broken through and found common ground in their efforts and the war in Vietnam. We now wait for a further word from the White House from Paris. Clifford Evans, Washington correspondent, WOR News. Meanwhile, South Vietnam's foreign minister, Tran Van Lam, told newsmen in Saigon that the talks between Kissinger and the North Vietnamese in Paris are at what he called an extremely serious stage. He asked commentators and observers not to make speculations which could cause difficulty in the negotiations, even as President Chu is meeting with United States Ambassador Ellsworth Bunker for their third such meeting in less than a week. Van Lam said the position of his government is, and we quote, we are prepared to discuss the ceasefire with the North Vietnamese at any time whatsoever and at any place. With the presidential elections only four days away, the Indochina War still figures largely in the campaign, Harrison Salisbury, the op-edge page editor of the New York Times, addressed a meeting of the Overseas Press Club in Manhattan tonight. WR's John Scott reminded him that some Democrats are charging that the current visit of Dr. Kissinger to Paris, the secret talks with the communists, is merely a political trick. Scott asked Salisbury his feeling on the subject, and Salisbury replied... Well, I doubt that it's a political move per se. I think that uh, Dr. Kissinger and the president have been working very hard to try and come up with a solution on Vietnam before the election. Now, maybe some political uh, uh, payoff in that, but I, they've been working at this for a long, long time. So I don't see this as, as politics. On the other hand, I really don't see much chance that they're going to be able to come up with something because these negotiations can always are wrecked on the rock of Chu. We're backing Chu. Chu is not going to go away. He's not going to give up in the South. And to try and accommodate his insistence on remaining and the equally hard insistence on the part of the North that he must go uh, is... Uh,